Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Bethan. And I'm Mark. Thank you for joining us once again. And it's um, nice for us to be back in our old haunts, really, isn't it? Because last time we recorded an episode, we had about 40 people listening Staring in, at sat in front and... of us. Yeah. yeah, sniggering and telling me to fuck off. So, yeah, it's back to normal Back now. to normal. It does feel a little bit more normal. But it is weird not to be able to look at you because it was quite nice to kind of go back to that old school way of doing it where we could actually see each other. Yeah, I really miss that, actually. We need to we need to do some more recordings together, don't we? It was yeah. um, very special. We are going to be talking all about our attendance at CrimeCon in Crime Wave, which will be out uh, in a couple of days' time uh, if you're listening to this on the day release. So, um, yeah, that's exclusively available on Patreon if you want to check it out. And speaking of Patreon, uh, let's cover off our Patreon thank yous before we launch into today's episode. I'm going to uh, suggest something a bit weird here, Mark. You're going to say to alternate, aren't I you? am. Do you want to try I it? I knew it. Yeah, who's going to go first then? You go first. Okay, well, uh, thank you then to our new and returning patrons. We have Bill Chilcott. Bridget Hall. Emily. Jade Jevons. I'd have said Jevons. Mm, okay, well, bo- <laughs> we've said both now. So, Jade, what, we've what was done the both, correct yeah. way? Alistair Simpson. Ben Kirk. Leia Mendieta. Nicolette West. Butterflyer. Bethany Sayer. Victoria Redman. B. Richard Palmer. James Howe. And I want to say Karen Beauchamp. Oh, I just said Beauchamp as well. Or even nice. just Beauchamp. Beauchamp, yeah. <laughs> Charlene Chapman. Ben Driscoll. Gary Wall. Rachel Brooke. Ben Kirk. Tom Bertels. Josie Shaw. Teresa Whitney. And Victoria Driver. Thank you so much, everybody. It really does mean the world to us. Yeah, it makes a huge difference to us. If you want to join these guys and get your hands on some bonus content and some other stuff that's happening over there, uh, all you need to do is go to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. It only takes a couple of minutes to sign up. and We've got about 400 people uh, that support us month in, month out on Patreon. Uh, and there's lots, lots going on over there, isn't there? Yeah, so much for you to sort of read and see and get involved in and we've got some competitions coming up where we're going to have loads of random prizes because we've got some goodies from CrimeCon and also some goodies that we were totally supposed to do a prize draw with back in I think April that we completely forgot about some signed books so we're going to be doing a bit of a summer bonanza I think it will be June July it'll be a bumper lot of competitions. It will and we also have loads of merch from Alcatraz which oh I my God, purchased and the Alcatraz stuff when I went well. to Alcatraz, yeah. yeah. I've got some amazing stuff that I bought, including original rock. Uh, Which I'm really jealous of. Whoever wins this, know that I'm intercepting your post and I'm going to totally steal that. Oh, I should have got you one, actually. Shouldn't I, don't, I shouldn't say that in case it does actually go missing and people genuinely think it was me. <laughs> Oops. Yeah. Uh, so uh, let's get on to today's episode then, because this week we're heading to Japan to explore a high-profile missing persons case from the year 2000. Oh. I loved going to Japan for a case because crime is so unusual there like this sorts of crime so um this is going to be interesting this is uh it really takes us into the culture of Japan and of Tokyo as well so it's it is a really interesting case for lots of different reasons And it's a case that shocked the world and garnered immense media coverage by exposing the darker side of the world's largest city, casting a wide and unsettling light on its deepest, darkest and most terrifying secrets. 
Tokyo is Japan's enormous capital metropolis. With a total area of 8,500 square kilometres and a population that exceeds 37 million people, it's the largest and most densely populated city in the entire world by a considerable margin. Now, to put it into context, Tokyo is more than one third of the size of England. And if you bear in mind, you know, England, we're not a massive country, but it's a bloody country. And Tokyo is just a city and it's a third of the size of England. That's crazy. And do you know how many people live in England? I don't have, I don't really know how many people live in England. Is it like 60 million? I think in the UK as a whole, it's about 67. So That's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, it's mad. Tokyo is an undeniably incredible city, which offers a seemingly unlimited choice of shopping, entertainment, culture and dining to its visitors. The city's history can be appreciated in districts such as Asakusa and in its many excellent museums, historic temples and beautiful gardens. Contrary to common perception, Tokyo also offers several attractive green spaces in the city centre and also within relatively short train rides out of the city. Somewhat ironically, Tokyo has been voted one of the safest cities in the world, and for several decades the Japanese capital has enjoyed remarkably low violent crime rates. So, you know, going back to what you said, Beth, and it's Japan and Tokyo does have very low crime rates. It seems understandable then that countless millions of foreign visitors pass through Tokyo each year. I remember when I was researching my case um, that I covered in Japan, and the amount of crime per person is just so so low and I think I looked at the difference between there and places like Chicago and stuff and it's just incredible the that low violent crime rate is it's really interesting isn't it it's fascinating especially when you think of somewhere like Tokyo which is as you said so populated yeah you just wonder how they've managed to ingrain it in their culture that it's so taboo to commit any kind of crime so yeah very very safe place to visit and of course it's an immensely popular destination for businessmen tourists digital nomads and backpackers alike and this has been the case for literally decades with Tokyo. Today we're going to tell you the tragic story of one such visitor from England who travelled to Tokyo with high hopes and dreams of financial success and great adventure only to be cruelly swallowed whole by the city's terrifyingly dark underworld, never to be seen again. Now, I looked at the name when you put this um, case up, and I genuinely don't think I've heard this case. So I'm going to be I'm going to be a newbie to this along with our listeners, which is going to be exciting for me because I always enjoy it when I'm not sure of the case. Yeah, it's... Um... It was, I mean, as I said at the beginning of the episode, it garnered mass media attention at the time, but this is over 20 years ago now, so uh, you'd have been a child, Betham. Lucy Blackman was born on September the 1st in 1978 in Seven Oaks, a popular and picturesque tourist town in Kent. She was the oldest of the three Blackman children and had a younger sister named Sophie and a brother called Rupert. From the very early stages of her life, Lucy was a grown-up, conscientious girl with a childish earnestness that made adults smile. When Jane Blackman, Lucy's mother, gave her peas to shell, she would examine each one individually, rejecting any that displayed the smallest sign of imperfection. She loved dolls and would sit alongside her mother tenderly cradling a plastic baby as Jane breastfed Lucy's younger sister Sophie. As a young student, Lucy showed real academic prowess and excelled in all of her subjects. She was also incredibly popular and well-loved by friends and teachers. 
As Lucy advanced into womanhood, she developed a taste for the finer things in life. She was an exceptionally attractive girl. Tall, with stunning features and platinum blonde hair, she loved to socialise with her friends, always wearing perfectly applied makeup and immaculate designer clothes. She had ambition and drive to live life to the fullest. Craving adventure and excitement, Lucy finished university and became a cabin crew member for British Airways, and for a time she enjoyed the perks of travelling around the world, staying in luxury hotels and living the life that she had always dreamed of. Oh, that reminds me of... Um, when I'd show you pictures of my auntie and her crew and oh, like British Airways that. and you'd be like, oh, look at them, they're so glamorous. Yeah, she would go, she would be in the Middle East. Didn't she live in Dubai or did yeah. I imagine that? Yeah, yeah, she did. Well remembered. Yes. God, that's like a real blast from the past for me. Um, I think it is a pretty glamorous job. I'd say it's pretty boring when you're up in the sky serving tea and coffee, but you do get to visit loads of different locations and it's kind of all expenses paid, isn't it? Yeah. So, and it, you're not there for very long, but you kind of only see like a hotel and the glamorous sort of thing and have some drinks and stuff. So you kind of get to see a pretty fancy, fun part of wherever you are. Yeah. After just 18 months on the job, though, the perpetual jet lag and the unsociable hours began to wear Lucy down. Furthermore, her lavish lifestyle and taste for the high life had led her gradually but deeply into debt. In early 2000, the now 21-year-old Lucy began making plans to resign from her position with British Airways and have a gap year in which she planned to travel and live abroad. Lucy was extremely serious about making an escape and for several weeks she spent her leisure hours endlessly researching several countries across the globe, sizing them up and prospecting them as possible destinations for this gap year. Lucy briefly considered Bangkok, Sydney, Rio de Janeiro and even New York. However, in the end, she settled on the exotic destination that she felt had the most appeal, Tokyo. Although Lucy loved to travel and had a fascination with Japanese culture, there were other motives for moving to Japan. Lucy had heard that young and attractive white Western women in Japan were considered high status symbols to the country's elite, and in exchange for very little work, she could earn a good living working as a hostess, so a nightclub girl who would be paid handsomely by wealthy Japanese businessmen to hang out with them, pour their drinks, light their cigarettes, dance for them, laugh at their jokes, and generally just make them feel important. So an escort really in in the traditional sense of the word. It really is, and there's very rarely any sort of actual sexual side to this. It's always just... yeah. it It is what it says on the tin, whereas I think here or other countries, you know that there's going to be potential for something else to be asked of you. But from what I've heard in Japan, it is very much like that is your job and you you make them feel really special while they're in the club, but you're not expected yeah. to go off afterwards or anything like that. They The men are just generous at the time in the club. Yeah, and it is all about that status mm-hmm. of having uh, a, a white Western girl. That's that's how it's considered over there, that that adds to, to status of, of Japanese businessmen, for example. So, um, so, yeah, you're absolutely right, though. There's rarely a sexual side to this, but there is sometimes. It was a well-known fact that the men who used hostesses were generally very wealthy and, of course, they tipped generously. It was also an open secret that almost all of the hostesses in Tokyo were Western women working illegally on tourist visas, and it was known that the Japanese authorities were inclined to turn a blind eye to this practice, which kind of makes sense because these were probably influential men, 
uh, the, maybe government yeah. officials, that kind of thing. So they had power. And the revenue that these women are bringing in, is it going to, you know, is, it, is that worth more maybe than yeah. the hassle? Yeah, could be. Lucy also became aware of first-hand accounts from other former hostesses who told fanciful and alluring tales of being handed huge bundles of Japanese yen. I still can't say I love that you put that in for yourself. It's bad enough when I put it in for you to say. I know. So, yeah, these um, these fanciful tales of being handed uh, huge bundles of Japanese yen in amounts worth literally hundreds of pounds in some instances. And this, of course, made Lucy's mind up. It just seemed perfect to her. She could travel in style, work a fun job, make really good money and come home after a year or so debt free and having had the time of her life. Not wanting to take the journey alone, Lucy also pitched the idea to her childhood friend, Louise Phillips, who was also tempted by the prospect of living and working as a hostess in Japan. Before long, Louise was inspired to also quit a job and take a gap year with Lucy in order to chase this dream. And the two girls were ecstatic. They were finally breaking away from the monotony of life to go on an amazing adventure in an exotic country. Lucy's mother Jane, however, didn't share her daughter's enthusiasm. Being something of a more spiritual person, Jane felt somewhat ominous about Lucy's plans. She desperately expressed her concerns to Lucy on numerous occasions and even briefly considered hiding Lucy's passport after her pleas for the girls to change their plans fell on deaf ears. And this is so fascinating for me because Jane clearly has this spiritual side and I just find that fascinating that she had this sixth sense about this trip and she knew that it wasn't going to potentially end well. But how, how can interesting. you... interesting, how bizarre that... She could have put her finger on it, but something just made her feel uneasy. And of course she was right, as we'll go on to hear. It was every mother's worst nightmare in terms of what went on to happen. But um, yeah, I just find it, I find it very interesting that she had this sixth sense and knew that it wasn't, it wouldn't be right. Uh, But equally, how can you stop your daughter from doing it if you've only really got a gut feeling that something bad's going to happen? So Jane later described to the media... I didn't want her to go at all, I just had this gut feeling, I can't explain it, that something dreadful was going to happen to her. Um, But yeah, like I say, I just find it absolutely fascinating. Lucy was quick to dismiss her mum's concerns and assured her that everything would be fine. It was clear that Lucy and Louise had made their minds up, they were going and that was that. When Lucy and Louise followed through with the plan and booked their flights, Jane realised that she had no choice but to accept the decision and hope for the best. Feeling helpless, Jane discreetly slipped a guardian angel card and some healing crystals into Lucy's luggage and prayed for her daughter's protection. Oh, I feel so sad for Jane. Lucy and Louise obtained 90-day tourist visas and arrived according to plan in Tokyo on the 4th of May in the year 2000. Neither of the girls spoke a word of Japanese and both quickly felt overwhelmed by just how enormous a city Tokyo was compared to their hometown of Seven Oaks. Nevertheless, after checking into a modest guest house, the girls soon managed to secure more permanent accommodation by co-renting a first-floor room in a house located next to Tokyo's iconic Olympic Stadium in the very heart of the city. The lodgings were modest, to say the very least, and featured no more than a bed, a shared bathroom, a tiny communal kitchen and a payphone. 
Within days of their arrival, both girls had also successfully secured hostess jobs at the Casablanca Bar in Tokyo's Roppongi district, a world-famous party area in Tokyo, and it was popular with tourists and backpackers alike, but also, of course, heavily under the control of local Yakuza crime syndicates who kind of dominate those areas in, Mm. in Tokyo. The area was, and still is, an endless stream of bars, clubs, restaurants, massage parlours, strip clubs and brothels. It represents the seedier side of Tokyo. But I think it sounds alright, to be fair. It sounds like where the fun is at. It doesn't sound very Japanese, does it? Not like at all, The idea of no. this sort of place. So um, maybe it's your like Western side coming out that makes you think it sounds like fun. Whereas yeah. for Japanese people, it's like the seedier side and it's... The not so good side, but actually, like it, it sounds like a lot of normal like cities around. You know, yeah. you think about England. If you think of many of the major cities, there's going to be an area like this, just without the accuser crime syndicate kind of well, control. Yeah. Maybe another crime syndicate. Though. Yeah, I've just I've just looked at a house uh, which had pretty much all of this uh, just around the corner: bars, clubs, restaurants, massage parlors, strip clubs, and brothels as well. Wow. So, um, so you yeah, instantly right. bought it. <laughs> yeah, I love, love that kind of <laughs> shit. Uh, so um, the security at Club Casablanca was tight and the bosses made a point of looking after their hostesses. So it's in a bit of a rough area, I suppose you could say. But uh, the girls were always very well looked after at, at any other clubs, including Club Casablanca. They had a strict policy against men touching the hostesses or making sexual propositions, and violation of these rules could result in the customer being barred for life from the club. And I guess that would also carry quite uh, an amount of shame with it. Mm, Yeah, definitely. Indeed, for Lucy and Louise at this point, everything was going according to plan. The girls adapted quickly to their new life in Japan, sightseeing by day and making impressive sums of money working as Casablanca hostesses to wealthy Japanese businessmen by night. By all accounts, the girls certainly seemed happy. They made friends and began to enjoy an active social life. Their high earnings from the club made it possible for them to live comfortably and to really make the most of their time in Japan. However, it didn't last long. Behind closed doors, the hectic lifestyle Lucy and Louise were living began to take its toll, especially on Lucy. The girls' jobs as hostesses matched their expectations in terms of high earnings potential. Indeed, they were making money hand over fist, but it soon became apparent that there was even more money to be made by seeing clients outside of the confines of Club Casablanca, and this was done by way of what is known as a doan. So a doan is essentially a non-sexual escort service, usually provided by hostesses to entertain rich clients. And it's where a man pays a hostess to accompany him out to dinner or to an event, for example, so that he can be seen with what is regarded in this culture as a high-status white woman. Um, And yeah, these were still non-sexual, really. So a doan is just kind of um, an extension of what the girls would do in, in the confines of a club. But I guess there's going to be it's going to be quite hard to say no if you're already a bit like burned out by how busy you are and then you're being asked of this as well. I can't imagine in Japanese culture that this these women are going to be allowed to kind of say no and not go along with it. You're right. Yeah, absolutely right. And back then it wasn't uncommon for an experienced hostess to make upwards of 500 pounds to 1000 pounds for a single doan. Wow which is like massive for a a date, essentially. I mean, even if you 
culturally, I feel like you can't say no. That's no. going to be hard to turn down for yourself as well because that's an incredible Absolutely. amount of money. Absolutely. It's a huge amount of money. I want to get paid that much to go out for dinner. Christ. You'd be well up for this. I'm in the wrong industry. The club bosses were eager to please their regulars at any cost in order to keep them coming back. And so they did, as you alluded to, Bethan. They put a tremendous amount of pressure on the hostesses to fulfil their clients' needs and to accept as many dohans as they possibly could. And it was also made clear to the hostesses that if a dohan was requested, then they absolutely must accept that. No excuses. And the bosses amped up the pressure even further by threatening to lay the girls off if it was decided that any of them were slacking off or if they were deemed to be of no further value to the clients or to the club. This only intensified the stress that Lucy and Louise were under, but the girls' hectic lifestyle outside of work certainly did little to help the situation. Lucy and Louise usually spent their non-working days sightseeing, then heading out into Rapongi's infamous clubbing circuit, drinking and partying all night, only to then go home and sleep for a meagre few hours before heading out and doing it all over again. And this reminds me so much of the Peru too, the, the two women yeah. that were smuggling cocaine out of Peru into Spain. And they were both sort of living in, in different Spanish islands, I think. Um, Michaela in Ibiza and Melissa in Mallorca I think and they were just leading these kind of hedonistic lifestyles for months and months and months where you just burn out so quickly because you're just taking a shitload of drugs and partying all night and then working as well I just think like just maybe do a little bit less sightseeing if if you need to just sleep all day surely I guess so, but the whole point that Lucy and Louise wanted to go to Japan was to really experience it and to travel and see what it's like and experience living there so they had these jobs which I guess would take them into the early hours that then maybe go out afterwards and party and then yeah you're kind of you're sort of like um you're turning night and day on its head aren't you really mm. uh, so they probably were sleeping the majority of the day and just going out a bit here and there to see the odd museum or whatever but it, it was exhausting and it really was a cycle of non-stop work and play And it wasn't only physically and mentally overwhelming for Lucy, but it was also becoming too expensive to maintain at this point. Lucy's debts weren't getting paid and she often found herself running short of cash. This sounds so like me. Oh my God, this is so like you. Like you'd get into this situation where you can make loads of money and then you'd be like, so this means I can drink more champagne. Yeah, I would. I'd spend a lot and, and some. So on the 26th of May in 2000, after just three weeks in Japan, Lucy wrote in her diary, I'm not coping well here. I can't pull myself out of this hole I've fallen into. This is tragic, this bit as well. I feel so ugly and fat and invisible in there and I constantly hate myself. And I think she's alluding to Club Mm. Casablanca when she says in there. I am so fucking up to my neck in debt and so badly need to do well, but I'm a crap hostess. I'm so exhausted with feeling this shit and feeling so lonely. I sometimes really can't be bothered to wait and find out what happens. I just want to disappear. And there could be an element of melodrama at that age in in writing this. You know, one day you feel like that and you write it and the next day you're you're happy and having the best time. But it really made me feel incredibly sad for Lucy. It's a long way from home. She is young and she talks of of this, you know, real low self-esteem is coming through. It's just so sad. 
So struggling with exhaustion and under tremendous pressure to perform at her job, Lucy began accepting lucrative offers from several of the club's locals to go on Dohans with them. And this was a high risk reward scenario for Lucy, mainly because these private Dohans usually occurred elsewhere in the city, far away from the safety and security that her work at the nightclub afforded her. However, it also opened the door for amazing amounts of cash to end up in her pocket after just a few hours of work. As aware as Lucy was of the inherent risks, she simply couldn't afford to ignore the high reward potential. And we say risks, and there were risks. Of course there are risks with this, but it was in Japan, it was in Tokyo, and it is deemed to be a safe city. She wasn't doing this in London or, I don't know, other kind of scary cities. Um... It all felt very civilised, I'm quite sure. And I'm sure as well she'll have heard from all the other girls that she's working with about how safe and easy it is. Or maybe not easy, but how... I think that's how... it. I think, I think how easy. Yeah. I think she probably was sold that this is an easy way of making major cash and you don't even have to fuck them. Mm. Despite the exhaustion, the deteriorating state of mental health and the inherent risk that came with working Dohans, Lucy soldiered on for another few weeks. The extra money made a big difference and helped her to keep her life in Tokyo ticking along. By the end of June, Lucy had began dating a member of the US Navy who was stationed in Japan. His name was Scott. After several dates, Lucy seemed smitten with him and her mental state showed some signs of improvement, which is pleasing. She seemed more upbeat and believed that things might finally be looking up for her. Through enormous effort, she had managed to hang on to her job at Club Casablanca and she was still taking as many dohans as she possibly could to keep her bosses happy and her bank balance healthy. On the morning of Saturday, the 1st of July in 2000, Lucy received a request for a dohan that afternoon from one of the Club Casablanca's regular customers. This particular dohan request had been made to Lucy directly and hadn't come through Club Casablanca. Nevertheless, she accepted the offer. Lucy and Louise both had the night off work that evening and had planned to go for a night out in Rapongi. Lucy assured Louise that she would be back on time so that their evening plans wouldn't change and their night could go ahead. Lucy didn't provide Louise with any details of the man who had requested the Dohan date. All she said was that they were travelling to the seaside. Both Lucy and Louise had been on so many Dohans at this stage that they rarely ever considered the danger anymore. It was all beginning to feel like a normal way of life to them. Therefore, nothing seemed out of the ordinary that day. Lucy left her home around 4pm to go and meet her Dohan date at a nearby train station. She was wearing a one-piece black dress and black sandals, a silver necklace with a heart-shaped diamond, and was carrying a black handbag. Just after 7pm, Lucy called Louise on their flat's payphone to let her know that the date was over and that she would be home within the hour. Straight afterwards, she called her boyfriend Scott and they arranged to meet up the following day. That would be the last verified contact that anyone would ever have again with Lucy. She was never seen alive after this point. After two hours, Lucy had still not returned home, despite promising to be home within the hour. All attempts to reach her on her mobile failed. Her friend Louise sat and waited for her, and the longer she waited, the more uneasy and worried she became about her friend. After four hours had passed with no sign of Lucy, Louise went straight to Club Casablanca and reported her concerns to club bosses. However, they were quick to brush it off as nothing, suggesting that perhaps Lucy had decided to have sex with her date and had therefore stayed the night. 
Louise believed strongly that Lucy would never do that, so she began to call local hospitals and police stations in order to check if Lucy had been involved in an accident or if there'd been any incident involving Lucy at all. However, there had still been no sign of Lucy despite all of these phone calls. Refusing to rest until she knew a friend was safe, Louise trawled the streets of Rapongi, desperately searching for Lucy and asking if any of the local bar staff had seen her. But again, she got nowhere. Bewildered and exhausted, Louise eventually went home and agonised over what to do next. She was extremely hesitant to call the police as this would mean having to admit their illegal working status in Japan, which would almost certainly see both girls prosecuted and probably deported. However, she knew deep down that something horrific had happened to Lucy, and all she wanted above all else was to see her home and safe again. God, yeah, you'd imagine like the um, absolute like sort of torture in her mind of like, but if I go to the police and then she turns up and she did just go off and have sex with this guy, she's going to be really mad at me because we're getting deported and we're going to get arrested and and you know, but if something has happened, am I going to get arrested and I never get to find out what happens with her or, you know, but something has happened. Like she must know in her gut that something's gone wrong. So she needs to do something about it. But, and yeah, not really speaking the language. I can't imagine they've really learned much Japanese since they've been there. Oh, it's just awful. And I can kind of understand it from the club bosses not to be that bothered because these are women that are pretty disposable to them that come and go really and like a really transient way all the time so they probably have seen this happen before where women have either like just stopped coming to work or go off with their dohan just don't yeah come back home like it's not that shocking to them and i'd say it's a it's a sort of job where girls obviously go over to japan go to Tokyo from all these different Western countries, do that job, and then they could just leave overnight. It's not the kind of job where you would give you notice no, of a month. not going to give you four weeks' notice and no. work your garden leave or something. It's just... You'd probably just snap and be like, I'm done, I need yeah. to go home, I'm homesick, and you just go. So, yeah, I don't think it was out of the ordinary to them necessarily, but I really feel for Louise at this point because I think she was, I think her and Lucy were very dependent on each other. They've been friends since childhood. They're in this extremely foreign country, this um, totally different culture. Like you say, they probably don't speak much Japanese at all. And um, I really felt for Louise in particular at this point because she's got no one really to run yeah. this past and, and sense check whether she's overreacting. She's got no one that she can fully trust. I bet she just so wanted to speak to Lucy and, yeah. and get a hold of her. Well, I feel you know? awful for Louise at this, yeah. And the worry would just be growing minute by minute. Mm-hmm. So by Monday morning, with still no sign of Lucy, Louise did now go to the local police station where she filed a missing persons report. However, she simply told police at this point that Lucy had gone missing after going for a day trip with an unknown male. She left out the part about their illegal hostess work or the fact that Lucy had been on a dohan at the time of her disappearance. The police's attitude towards Lucy's report wasn't dissimilar to the bosses at Club Casablanca's. They brushed Louise off and implied that Lucy was off having a weekend of fun with some man that she'd met in the club. Now at the end of a tether, Louise then decided to report what had happened to the British Embassy in Tokyo. And this time Louise confessed the whole truth about their illegal work and about Lucy being on a dohan at the time. The embassy officials were immediately concerned for Lucy's welfare and they promised that they would put pressure on the police to act more decisively. 
Later that same afternoon, Louise received a phone call on the flat payphone from an unknown Japanese number. When she answered, the man on the other end introduced himself as Akira Takagi. The man was obviously intelligent and educated. He had almost perfect command of English and spoke in a thick Japanese accent. After the initial introduction, he firmly warned Louise to stop looking for Lucy. He went on to say that Lucy was alive and well, but had gone willingly to a secret location to join a religious cult. I mean, major alarm bells would be ringing Mm -hmm. now, wouldn't they? In a desperate bid to obtain more information, Louise feigned interest in joining the cult herself and asked if she could meet the cult's leaders. Akira ignored her request and ended the call abruptly after telling Louise again to give up her search, ominously telling her that she would never be seeing Lucy again. I mean, fair play to her for trying that, for like thinking on her oh, feet. Oh, I thought it was thinking, amazing. Oh yeah, can I join too? Like, because actually if it was a real situation, they'd probably quite like another girl to come along. So exactly. Clever. Yeah. And that's, oh, that's, that is so, oh, what a horrible phone call to have just, you just, she, you can just imagine her just sitting back after he's hung up, just being like, oh my God. <laughs> And she she knew beyond any doubt now that Lucy was in serious trouble. Uh, As I said, she'd known Lucy since childhood. They'd been friends all of their lives. And she knew in her heart that her friend would never just run away to join a cult. And you would know that, wouldn't you? If it was your best friend, you would know that. Terrified, she reported her call from the man calling himself Akira to the embassy. Afterwards, she finally made the call that she'd been dreading for days. She called Lucy's family. They were understandably panic-stricken upon hearing the news that Lucy was missing, but, like Louise, they rejected the notion that Lucy had run away to join a cult. They feared that Lucy had met with foul play. Without hesitation, Lucy's younger sister Sophie, who was just 20 years old at this time, flew to Tokyo to start searching for Lucy herself. After meeting with Louise, Sophie went to the Japanese police, who treated Sophie's desperate concerns with the same level of indifference as they had when Louise had initially reported the incident. This time, they theorised that Lucy may have run away on purpose to escape her credit card debts, a claim that was vehemently rejected by the Blackman family due to her debts being relatively manageable and not much of a concern in the grand scheme of things. Meanwhile, back in the UK, the media had caught the scent of a British tourist missing in Japan. Owing to the highly unusual circumstances of the disappearance, and probably due to Lucy being a young, attractive white woman, the case immediately garnered immense public interest and was widely publicised and reported on across several major news outlets. The Blackman family welcomed the intense media coverage, hoping it would prompt the authorities in Japan to start taking their daughter's disappearance a little more seriously. On the 12th of July in 2000, now 11 days after Lucy had gone missing, her father Tim Blackman also touched down in Tokyo to begin the search for his daughter. Tim's strategy was to apply pressure on the Japanese authorities by leveraging the intense media interest surrounding the case, which had now spread far beyond the UK and was making headlines around the world. What followed was an immensely high-profile media campaign headed by Tim Blackman. The day after Tim landed, a press conference was held in Tokyo. Primetime news programmes in Japan began to report the story of the disappearance and went live to the press conference in which Tim Blackman made an emotional and heartfelt plea to the kidnapper to release Lucy and to allow her to come home. Tim Blackman rejected suggestions by reporters that his daughter might have run away to escape credit card debt or that she would willingly have joined a religious cult. 
he ended the conference by announcing that a cash reward of £10,000 was on offer to anyone who could provide information that would lead directly to his daughter's safe return. All of this does feel rather familiar now and I think potentially I just don't remember the names but um, I remember like the family just rushing over to Japan just to try and do something and you can just I just can't even imagine you're leaving what you know behind and you're going to this completely unknown country that's the other side of the world and you're like but I need to do this it's just crazy isn't it yeah I think Tim's done an amazing job to land in a country that he's probably never visited before he's probably going out of his mind with worry that his daughter's now been missing for 11 days and he manages to coordinate a press conference and then the following day he arranges for 30,000 posters of Lucy to be distributed in Tokyo displaying her picture and appealing for, for help in finding her and this was really a bit of a blueprint I think for the McCanns a few years later in terms of the uh, garnering that media attention that surrounded the case uh, for maximum gain on their part in terms of helping them to reach a resolution in, in finding their daughter. Tim Blackman also approached British Foreign Secretary Robin Cook, who happened to be visiting Tokyo at the time, and appealed to him for assistance. UK Prime Minister Tony Blair also mentioned the case during an official visit to Japan where he met with the Japanese Prime Minister Yoshiro Mori as part of the G8 summit. The Japanese Prime Minister readily agreed to help the Blackman family and under his strict orders, police detectives in Tokyo assembled a task force dedicated to locating Lucy as a matter of high priority. Okay, so something good that Tony Blair has done then, there we go, that's... Apart, yeah, I mean, we can forgive him inciting inciting war now and being a war No, I am not saying we can... But I'm just saying... No, I know, I'm kidding. But yeah, definitely, he did loads. I'm sure he did loads of great stuff. He just did lots of bad stuff as well. But we don't get political on this podcast, unlike other shows. Let's get away from this right now. (laughs) Yeah, you know who I'm talking about, don't you, Beth? You need to stop drinking. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, I I fucked up a lot more lines since I last said that I fucked lines up and Bethan's patience is wearing incredibly thin Incredibly thin. My skin is like tissue paper right now. Tissue paper. (laughs) Bethan, I've literally had three quarters of a gin and tonic. That is it. And I'm fucked. Um, Anyway, so... Who cares? Whatever. Not long after all of the all of this, largely thanks to the exceptionally high media interest in the case, an expat businessman in Japan added a hundred thousand pounds to the reward money wow. that stood at ten thousand pounds at that time, which is so generous. That's incredible. It's amazing. Yeah, it's a hell of a lot of money, isn't it? And he also offered to help Tim and Sophie to set up the Lucy Blackman hotline, a call centre staffed by sympathetic British expats on a voluntary basis that could receive tips and information from the wider Japanese public. Tim and Sophie readily agreed and the hotline was promptly set up and was almost immediately flooded with hundreds of calls. Sir Richard Branson also extended an olive branch in the search by personally funding a 30-second film that appealed for help in finding Lucy. The production was aired regularly on Japanese terrestrial TV and at all of Tokyo cinemas before the films aired. Am I right in thinking you're a massive fan of Richard Branson, Bethan? I do like him. I don't think I would necessarily call myself a massive fan, but um, I do like the guy. I think he's um, quite inspirational from like an entrepreneurial sense. And I'd like my own island as well. 
Who wouldn't? Yeah. But, um, and my own airline. I don't think he, I think he's quite a decent um when he when you hear him talking about how he believes his employees should feel like they're as important as anybody else in a company and things like that. Um maybe I am a fan of his, but I've never really thought of myself as I am. Well there you go, you can definitely call yourself a fan now. Ooh. After all that fangirling we've just heard. Crikey. So dis- Despite the multitude of calls that were coming into this hotline, none of them were amounting to much, unfortunately. Police detectives from Tokyo paid close attention to all of the tip-offs that were being provided by the public, but the bulk of them were clearly empty, and in many cases, they were from poor residents of Tokyo who had taken a chance on the reward money, which is really sad. Oh, that's really tragic. Yeah. But understandable as well. Of course, says a lot about that city. On the 1st of August in 2000, exactly a month after Lucy had vanished, Rapongi police received a letter that had allegedly been written by Lucy. The letter, in fractured English and littered with spelling errors, tried to convince the police, the media and Lucy's family that she was still alive and well and happy with her new religious cult. Oh, cringe that it was even written by someone that potentially didn't speak English as a first language. I mean, and... fucking hell, yeah. How stupid's that? And of course it was dismissed as a hoax, a really cruel hoax, but I think they would have quite quickly been able to ascertain that it, it wasn't her. It makes it was, me wonder um, if it's her... A kidnap or killer though that's what worries yeah. me yeah i don't i don't know if that was ever established because we'll we'll obviously um get there soon but i yeah i don't know if i'd be thinking that was a hoax or if i'd be thinking it's a someone trying to take us away from the scent i don't know it's just a that's a really odd one for me yeah because it does mirror the phone call that louise received mm. which spoiler alert was from um the person responsible for lucy's disappearance by august the 4th tim blackman was completely exhausted Long days and sleepless nights spent liaising with the police and journalists and pounding the pavement searching for his daughter had taken their toll on his mental health. Tim travelled back to the UK to recuperate and to discuss his next move with the police in England. However, not long after his arrival in the UK, Mr Blackman received a strange phone call from an unknown man who introduced himself as Michael Hill, a businessman living in Holland who had links to the Yakuza crime Japanese syndicate in Tokyo. He told Tim that he had been tasked by the Yakuza to deliver an important message. Hill went on to explain that the fierce police and media presence in and around Tokyo was creating logistical problems for the Yakuza in conducting their drug and gun running operations in the city. And he said that the Yakuza bosses were eager to put the matter to bed as soon as possible. And this all makes sense to me. It totally makes sense that there's a heavy police presence now in Tokyo around these areas and this crime syndicate are finding it difficult to conduct their operations. Um, So it does make sense. Um, So the Yakuza had suggested that if Lucy was indeed still alive, she was more than likely being kept somewhere in the Japanese underworld. As such, the Yakuza were now offering to help Tim Blackman to locate his daughter and send her back to the UK safely. But their help would come at a cost. Oh, do you know what? This is what annoys me, though, is like, at first, I'm like, you know what, I can understand that you want the police out of your territory and you want them to go back to their desk jobs to get off the streets. But you're also going to make sure that there's a cost involved. That's what makes me think that either Hill is a horrible, horrible person trying to, like, take advantage or that this, like, I don't know that, well, obviously the accused are, are like, crime people, so they're not going to be lovely people. But that's really frustrating because, actually, if they'd have just gone, we want this police off our streets, we're going to put a load of effort into finding your daughter 
Um, but we need you to, the second you find her, you say you don't want anything further to go on. You get her home. You don't worry about Japan anymore. I could understand that a little bit more because you'd be like, okay, fair enough. The police are now off the streets and also not investigating anymore. But obviously there's a cost involved. Yeah, they're just Tim was initially sceptical about Hill's claims. However, the police investigation in Japan was making no progress and Tim was becoming increasingly exhausted and desperate to get his daughter back at any cost, which you can totally understand. So a few days later, Hill contacted Tim once again, this time with a troubling update. He claimed that Lucy was indeed alive and in the custody of a gang of sex traffickers who were planning to move her out of Japan to get away from all of the attention that she was getting in the media. The move could be prevented, Hill explained, but it would be a complicated and expensive process. So Tim did what I think any desperate father would have done at this point. He decided to take a chance on Hill's claim and the two men met up in London. At the meeting, Hill explained that the cost of locating Lucy would be £50,000. Tim was to make an upfront payment to Hill of £12,500, then go immediately to Japan to meet with the Yakuza members who would be getting Lucy back. Then he would be expected to hand over the rest of the money once Lucy was safely returned home. Oh my god, no, Mark. I know, I know. Tim did as he was instructed. He paid Hill £12,500 in cash. He then travelled to Japan to await further instructions. But of course, those instructions never came. So this guy had done all of this just for 12 and a half grand. What an absolute horrible evil person. Yeah. All contact between Tim and Hill evaporated into nothing, of course, and Tim was left in Tokyo with that gut-wrenching realisation that he'd been ruthlessly conned by this guy. Um, And he really was an evil guy. Meanwhile, the Tokyo police's investigation into Lucy's disappearance was still not getting anywhere. Detectives had little to no leads to show for the work that they'd done so far and they received scathing criticism from the Blackman family and the world's media for their disorganised, disinterested and generally useless handling of the case. For instance, the Japanese police claimed that there were legal confidentiality complications preventing them from tracing back the call that was made to Louise by Akira Takagi the man who had claimed that Lucy had run away to join that cult. So even though they've got all these police powers, they're saying that there's confidentiality complications preventing them from getting this call looked at, which is crazy. And the subject of illegal hostess work in Tokyo also became a hot topic in the media, and several former and active Roppongi hostesses came forward with horror stories that detailed the immensely dangerous nature of the job. So it was really starting to show the the underworld of, of... Tokyo's um, entertainment districts here. It was also discovered that Lucy was far from the first case of a hostess going missing during a Dohan date, and the media began to report on other missing hostesses who had vanished without a trace in the city. However, just as it looked as though the trail had gone completely cold, the police came up with their first solid lead. Three Western women living in Tokyo, all of them former Rapongi hostesses, came forward via the Lucy Blackman hotline to describe waking up sore, sick and naked in a strange man's bed with no memory of the night before after being given a glass of red wine by a wealthy businessman who had taken them out on a dohan. 
Japanese detectives conducted extensive interviews with all three women and were able to establish clear similarities between the man whom each of the women had encountered. The physical description of the man that each victim gave was remarkably similar. So they all kind of said this guy was in his early 40s. He was short, smartly dressed and spoke good English. And all three women had passed out after being given a drink of red wine and they were all attacked in the Zushi Marina area of Tokyo. It also turned out that all three of the women had reported the incident to Rapongi police, but had all essentially been ignored, which is absolutely appalling. This is really starting to ring a bell for me, and I just think potentially it's a case that I've not thought about or listened to or read about in a long time, maybe, and that's why. But this is really kind of reminding me again, and it's this idea of these women just not being listened to, I think is almost like the most frustrating and upsetting part that so, like things will happen and it's horrendous, but it is a part of human nature that we will have evil people. Mm. But the people you should be able to trust and go to and report your, I mean, these women are brave to go and report it in a country that's not their own. And as a woman and in, in quite a vulnerable situation already to then go and report this and they're not being listened to. And they they were probably working there on incorrect visas or they'd outstayed visas, so they they risked being deported as well. Yeah, same as like when um, Louise was thinking about, do I call or not? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And these women had been raped. Um, It's just appalling to think what happened. And we will go on to it, of course, in minimal detail uh, shortly. But yeah, they'd, they'd all been raped. Uh, So there was little room for doubt that the police were looking for a serial rapist who was targeting Rapongi hostesses, drugging them, rendering them unconscious and then sexually assaulting them. Given the similar circumstances in which Lucy had gone missing, it certainly seemed as though the man they were after had graduated from rape and sexual assault to now abduction and possibly even murder. As time went on, even more women came forward with very similar accounts of being drugged and assaulted by the same man and in the same location. In a city as enormous as Tokyo, this information was welcomed as it gave Japanese detectives a much narrower triangulation of where to start looking, because that would have been a massive issue Mm. otherwise. Now focusing their efforts on Zushi Marina, the police began reviewing all the police incident reports that had emerged from the area over the last few years, hoping to find someone that could give them a clue as to the identity of the rapist. As they searched, the police detectives were also finally able to obtain the correct authorization to trace the call that had been made to Louise's house phone by Akira Takagi, the man who had claimed that Lucy had joined this cult. Working on the assumption that Akira Takagi was a fake name, police were unable to determine the real identity of the man straight away, but they were able to determine that the call had been made from an apartment block in Zushi Marina, and that's the same area where all of the hostesses had been attacked. Yeah, a huge breakthrough this was. The police obtained details of all the residents in the apartment block and quickly came across one individual of interest. A man who had a history of sex crimes, including a conviction for secretly videoing unsuspecting females using public toilets. And I just wanted to say at this point, you know, we've talked about voyeurism, haven't we, a little bit on the show. And we went into quite a bit of detail in Crime Wave in uh, the most recent episode, I think. And it's a bit like flashing, isn't it? I think we can almost have this sort of carry on sense of humour around some of these things, or we used to. but today's flasher is potentially tomorrow's rapist. Absolutely. And I think it's the same 
the same with any kind of voyeurism, particularly when, when videoing is happening. So I think that's a huge alarm bell. And if you haven't got the respect about one thing, well, then you haven't got respect for people in other areas as well. And that's, that's then really disturbing and worrying. And my God, did this guy not have respect for women, as we'll go on to here. Uh, so his name was Joji Obara. Uh, the police showed Obara's mugshot to all of the former hostesses who had claimed that they'd been assaulted in Zushi Marina. And all of the women unanimously identified the man in the picture as their attacker. So they've got their man now. And with the knowledge that they were on the right track, the police began to dig deeper into the life and crimes of their new prime suspect. 48-year-old Joji Ibarra was born in 1952 to a poverty-stricken Korean immigrant family in Osaka, Japan. Despite the family's humble beginnings, Ibarra's father worked his way up from a low-paid scrap collector to an immensely wealthy owner of a string of properties and high-end massage parlours. And by the time Ibarra was a teenager, he was living a life of privilege and luxury. Ibarra was educated at a private Tokyo school and received one-on-one tutoring in a variety of subjects. At the age of 15, he was accepted into a prestigious prep school affiliated with Keio University, virtually guaranteeing his acceptance into the latter institution upon graduation of that school. Two years later, after his father's death, Abara inherited highly valued properties in Osaka and Tokyo, and after travelling extensively and graduating from Keio University with degrees in politics and law, he became a naturalised Japanese citizen and legally changed his name at this point. Abara invested heavily in Japanese real estate and gained assets that had an estimated value of around $38 million. However, his sweet luck turned sour during the market recession in the early 1990s, and Abara lost most of his fortune when property prices crashed hard. After declaring himself bankrupt, he was pursued by creditors and reportedly used his business as a money laundering front for the Yakuza crime syndicate. The police now had more than enough circumstantial evidence to move on Abara. On October the 12th, police moved in and arrested him on five charges of rape for his assault on the other hostesses. However, they still needed proof that Abara had been responsible for Lucy's kidnapping and probable murder. Under intense questioning, Abara denied all charges and claimed that he had never even heard of Lucy Blackman, let alone had met her personally. He also denied ever having raped anyone. After obtaining search warrants, the police raided several of Abara's Tokyo properties. In one of them, they made several deeply incriminating discoveries, including a stack of handwritten journals in which Ibarra had made graphically detailed admissions of his twisted sexual deviancy and predatory behaviour. Why do people do this? Why do they write stuff in journals? Why are you going to write all this stuff down? And handwritten as well. You can't even pretend that's someone else's because the handwriting is going to be yours. Yeah, I think they're just so compelled to have a record of what they've done so they can relive it. And that, that must override any common sense, I guess. And also there must be a huge amount of arrogance in these people. They just think they're probably never going to get caught. Mm. So in these journals, page after page, Abara boasted with a disgusting overtone of misogyny and arrogance how women disgusted him and were only good for sex. He also revealed in graphic detail how he used a variety of date-rape substances, including the highly hazardous sedative drug chloroform, to render his victims unconscious before raping them. 
Abara mentioned several times in the entries that he had no sexual interest in women who were conscious, unable to resist, or even for that matter, to willingly enjoy the sex themselves. Oh, God. I know, that really stayed with me. Mm. This alone was incriminating enough, but the police were shocked to discover even more. In another property, they discovered filming equipment and a collection of more than 400 videotapes in which Abara had recorded his sick attacks on countless victims. In the videos, Abara would wear a mask to cover his face and would often hold a chloroform-soaked rag over his victims' faces if it looked as though they were about to wake up. God, that's so dangerous. Like, not that he cares, oh, but... massively dangerous. Like, you're going to kill someone? Like, that's that's just mad. Like, it's bad enough, almost, like, that you're using some sort of drug, but something in this manner... This is so remnant of Stephen Port as well, mm-hmm. isn't it? The grinder killer. Uh, So he would drug and rape his victims and he enjoyed having sex with unconscious men. It's the unconscious thing, wasn't it, as well with him? Yeah. So So bizarre. And what we saw with Stephen Port, of course, is these sort of accidental overdoses where he'd gone a bit too far. Maybe he did intend on killing them, but I think with his first victim, I think it was perhaps an accident. And I think this happened with a bar or two, as we'll go on to learn in a moment. Although the police were able to identify several of the victims in the videotapes, there was still no evidence that Lucy was one of them. She didn't feature in any of the videotapes and there was no mention of her in any of his journal entries. And I think that there must be so many victims out there as well that weren't actually aware that they'd been raped. And the police did try and uh, obviously identify these victims in these 400 videotapes, but they couldn't uh, identify all of them. So there must be women out there right now who have been raped by Abara and aren't actually aware of that. Despite this lack of Lucy being in the videotapes, police were certain that he was the man responsible for her disappearance. So working around the clock with a renewed enthusiasm, I think it's fair to say, and determination to nail this evil rapist, their hard work did soon pay off. On the 15th of October, the police carried out a second search on a bar of Zushi Marina property and discovered a long blonde strand of hair. DNA analysis revealed that the hair was a perfect match to Lucy's and proved beyond doubt that she had indeed been inside that apartment. Oh, do you know what, though? If I was her family at this point, I would just be thinking, well, these other women woke up feeling rubbish. These other women woke up feeling in agony and they knew what had happened to them or didn't know what had happened to them but knew something had happened to them all these other women were videoed and I'd just be thinking this has been too long now she she should have woken up disorientated and headed back and maybe days later but or ended up in hospital I think this now would be the point where you just think god she definitely was there yeah you're gonna know that she's dead and you're probably gonna put two and two together and, and assume that that there's been an overdose of chloroform and and too much has been used mm. and and she's passed out and become unconscious and and died um so so yeah i think that realization would absolutely have hit now because they know without doubt that she was in his apartment and the rest of it you can work out for yourself 
The police also, during this raid, seized several rolls of camera film uh, in the property. And once developed, the police found two images of Lucy Blackman smiling on the balcony of Joji Ibarra's Zushi Marina apartment. And shopping receipts, yeah, shopping receipts were also found on the property and revealed that Ibarra had purchased several suspicious items, including several sacks of industrial concrete and a number of tools that were consistent with the disposal of a body. So the net was closing in now and Lucy's family were close to getting justice for their daughter. However, the police still had to prove beyond doubt that Lucy was dead and that Abara was the killer. Under further interrogation, Abara admitted that he and Lucy had been on a dohan together, but he denied killing her. He also claimed that the women in the videotapes had fully consented to the acts, claiming that both he and they had a fetish for what he called conquest play, which is basically rape-based role-play. Oh, God, so he's trying to say that these women were acting or, like, knew what they were going into and they'd agreed to do it. Yeah. As more and more serious criminal charges continued to stack up against Ibarra, he was also linked to the death of an Australian tourist who had died under unusual circumstances after going on a dohan with him. I mean, this is way too much of a coincidence. Karita Ridgway was a model from Western Australia who was working in Tokyo as a bar hostess. She was a hard worker and had hoped to earn enough money to attend acting school. After going on a dohan with Ibarra, she had been rushed to hospital with suspected food poisoning, but had sadly died not long afterwards, with her official cause of death being one of liver failure. The man who had admitted Carita to the hospital refused to provide doctors with any of his personal contact details, and left in a hurry once Carita had been taken in. However, when Ibarra's mugshot was shown on national TV and he was named as the prime suspect in Lucy's kidnapping and dozens of rapes, he was definitively identified as the man who had been with Carita on the night that she died. And it was later revealed by police that Carita Ridgway had indeed been identified as one of the rape victims in Ibarra's video collection. And her name had also been mentioned in one of his diaries and next to her name he'd written, quote, too much chloroform which is just fucking awful. This revelation made police and the doctors who had battled in vain to save Carita believe that her actual cause of death was not from food poisoning, but was far more likely to be as a result of a lethal dose of chloroform, possibly given accidentally, as people who overdose on chloroform usually die from rapid liver failure. So, you know, it's clear that she, uh, I think that was probably an accident, but that's how how she died. Too much chloroform just sounds like he'd made a note of like, oh, that was too much, not um, like choosing to like give that much. Yeah. And I think um, I think these drugs, so chloroform and GHB, as was used by Stephen Port, I think it's so easy. They they say with GHB, it's so easy to get the dose slightly wrong. Just a tiny amount too much can be fatal. Um, there's a real fine line between a, a kind of not therapeutic dose, but a recreational dose mm. and uh, a fatal dose. And I wonder if chloroform's similar. At the end of October in 2000, Abara was charged with drugging, raping and murdering Lucy Blackman, as well as raping a total of eight other women. He was also charged with the manslaughter of Carita Ridgway. He was denied bail and remanded in custody. During this time, the police conducted a widespread search of the coastal areas close to several of Abara's Seaview properties. Using sniffer dogs and ground-penetrating radar equipment, the police focused on the nearby cliffs and beaches. 
On February the 9th in 2001, whilst examining an isolated cliffside around 180 metres from one of Ibarra's apartments, the radar technology picked up on something suspicious deep within the mouth of a small cave. It was here that the police made the grim and heartbreaking discovery which realised everyone's worst fears. Inside the cave, human remains were found buried in a shallow grave underneath an upside-down bathtub. The body had been cut into ten pieces and put inside separate bags. The head had been shaved and encased in concrete. The body was too decomposed to show the exact cause of death. However, dental records soon proved that it was Lucy Blackman. And after several long months, she'd finally been found. God, that's I just, so, this... like, um, an undignified last oh, resting place. It's so, it's so undignified. Awful. Yeah, to, to have been cut into ten pieces, to have her head cut off, and for him to have shaved her, all of her hair off... Yeah, just really, we hear awful stuff on this show all the time, but that in particular really bothered me. As the devastating news broke worldwide, a wave of grief swept across the UK via the media. The Japanese police received scathing criticism of their shoddy handling of the case, with Lucy's family especially holding the police personally responsible for not acting quickly or decisively enough when their daughter had initially been reported missing. You can't argue with that. Mm. The trial of Joji Ibarra, who had now been charged with the murder of Lucy Blackman, began on July the 4th in 2001. During the trial, a remorseless Ibarra attempted to lie his way out of trouble. He hung on to the narrative that the women he raped had consented to being drugged and filmed during the act. He implied that Lucy Blackman was a manic depressive drug user who smoked weed and consented to sex with him, a revelation which of course deeply upset the Blackman family. When asked about the death of Carita Ridgway, he continued to insist that she had died of food poisoning, despite the overwhelming amount of medical evidence that now pointed towards a lethal dose of chloroform as the cause of her death. Needless to say, nobody was buying it. On April the 24th in 2007, after several years of monthly hearings carried out by a panel of judges presiding over the case, Ibarra was finally found guilty of multiple rape charges and of the manslaughter of Carita Ridgway but was acquitted of Lucy's rape and murder, owing to a lack of direct evidence that his actions had directly caused her death. Oh, that's so frustrating. Isn't that because awful? here you kind of have to prove, like, even beyond circumstantial evidence. Yeah, yeah, it's beyond reasonable doubt. And, I mean, how can you think, well, that she would have been with anybody else and she wasn't, and so he's done this to all these other people, but, oh, there's still the chance he didn't do it to her. Like, what? That's absolutely mental. And a really protracted legal case as well over years. That's awful. For that family to sit through that month on month on month. Yeah. And the reason they couldn't make those charges stick was mainly due to the fact that Lucy's body was so badly decomposed that they couldn't ascertain the exact cause of death. That was the main issue that they encountered. It was ruled that Ibarra may have been intent on raping Lucy and, like Carita Ridgway, had actually accidentally given her a lethal dose of either a sleeping pill or chloroform, which is what I think maybe happened. Lucy may have passed away either before or during Ibarra's assault, prompting him to then sort of panic, I guess, and dispose of her body and destroy any video evidence, which he clearly done because he would have filmed this and there was no video evidence found. So what do you think, Bethan, at this point? Do you think that he... 
So, you know, Carita Ridgeway, that's manslaughter. It looks like that was an accident based on what Abara wrote in his diary. Do you think he got a taste for for killing women at that point? Or do you think with Lucy it was another mistake? Do you know what? This is the difficulty because actually you, I don't think you can prove that this was murder and potentially it is no. manslaughter again because it's not like after Carita he's then gone and killed over and over and over and no. I assume that they would have been able to see from timestamps on videos and, and timings of things that whether he continued to potentially um, drug and rape women in between as yeah. well, which it sounds like he did. Um, and the too much chloroform does sound as though, whilst it's absolutely sickening, he just, in inverted commas, wanted to have these unconscious women and, and he was a horrific rapist. But, and you know, he's clearly not that cut up about the fact that he's killed somebody by accident. Mm. But maybe he's managed to tell himself, well, actually, no, it was food poisoning. It must have been what she ate before she came to me. I did give her a bit too much chloroform, but she's. I took her to hospital. And, you know, there could have been something where he's tried to justify it to himself. This time he's realised he's he's done something again, so he's tried a different way of disposing of a body. But I, ju- I don't know. I feel like if you're going to be investigated this much, if there was anybody in between the two of them, that would have been, or even his suspicious behaviour, if he'd have gone out and bought concrete three other times, it maybe yeah, wouldn't make you true. think. But they've also searched a lot of properties around his area and they've found, so Lucy's body's been found and her remains, but no, nothing else, which sounds as if there were no other victims as well. I do think potentially that this was an accident, like accidental overdose again. Mm. But again, it's he's not then followed you know, he's not taken her to the hospital or done anything to try and save I th- her. I think the difference here, I think what happened with Carita is uh, she went into liver failure, was alive, and he was able to take her to hospital. With Lucy, I think she died at, at his scene home. Yeah. of his Zushi Marina apartment. I think she died probably in his bedroom mm-hmm. and there was no way he could t- then take her to hospital. So he knew he needed to dispose yeah. of a body. Because you can't call and, an ambulance um, to an address. No, because, of course not. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what? That's what I think as well. I think this was a horrific accident. I just, yeah, I just don't necessarily think that he was a murderer at this point. No, I think it's manslaughter, but I don't think he's a murderer. And I would say it's more than an accident because he, he was obviously taking a huge risk in drugging her and could have overdosed her quite easily as he did. So um, so for the charge of manslaughter, the prosecutor produced an autopsy report showing traces of chloroform in Carita Ridgway's liver and also a paper trail showing that Abara accompanied her to the hospital before, the, before she died. And in Lucy's case, though, the prosecutor couldn't produce any forensic evidence directly linking Abara to her death. And as I said, her cause of death couldn't be ascertained. So you can sort of see it's much more difficult, really, for them to mm. make any charge stick. I do get it in in a way, but it's yeah. incredibly frustrating. It's all well and good us kind of sitting here and saying, well, clearly he did it, but that's not yeah. how the legal process It doesn't work works. like that, of course. And it is frustrating, but yeah, we have to kind of respect it, I suppose. Mm. Um, so nevertheless, Abara was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum term of 20 years. I think it should have been longer, really. 
Um, and after the trial, Tim Blackman controversially accepted £450,000 in condolence money from a wealthy associate and friend of Ibarra's, despite the other members of the Blackman family being strongly opposed to accepting the money. And this is something that, that you can do in Japanese law. Uh, they can um, accept uh, like a cash in lieu of sentence reduction, I think is how it works. So I can understand why the, the Blackmans as a whole didn't want uh, that money accepted but I think you know Tim was a next of kin as much as Jane was so he had a right to accept that money but I do think although I've not I couldn't read it I'm pretty sure Ibarra had a slight reduction in sentence as a result. It's such a difficult one though because if you know that that's potentially what would happen as part of the culture anyway and it's not something you're a part of I can imagine that Tim would have really battled with the decision making but ultimately it maybe goes some way to getting you out of the debt you would have got into going back and forth to Japan trying to find your daughter being conned of potentially attending trials leaving your job I should imagine he probably left you know yeah possibly maybe he was able to keep his job but how many jobs do we know of where you could be out of the you know, you might be able to take a sabbatical for a short while, but, you know, how how much their lives would have been overturned. Mm. That £450,000 is going to make a big difference to at least helping towards it. And it's never going to bring Lucy back, but at least it might go some way to setting their lives back up a little bit in the UK. Yeah, and he, he did actually establish um, a non-profit organisation called LBT Global, and that provides financial and diplomatic assistance to families who are searching for missing loved ones oh, abroad. well, there we go. So, like, I totally yeah, get so, it then. That's really gone to do some amazing good for people. Massively. Because he, you know, it's very lucky that her sister was able to get on a flight and go and that he was able to. And I feel like if it was my situation and it was my sister, I would be able to get the money to get together to head to get on a flight and to go. And I'm in a very fortunate position that I feel like I would be able to scrimp and save the money around from different places. Um, And I think you'd be the same if this was your sister, you'd be able to just get on a plane and you'd go to Japan. But there's going to be families where that is not even possible with beg borrows from everybody you know. So for him to set up this non-profit is just incredible. Yeah, and no, I, I think when a loved one goes missing abroad, it's bad enough when they go missing in this country, but to go missing abroad, particularly in a, a country like Japan that's so different to ours, yeah, where would you begin? You know, I'm sure that that, um, I hope it's still uh, up and running, but I'm sure that LBT Global provides advice as well as practical help. So, um, yeah, it's kind of, I guess, if it's still up and running, go to if, if that ever happens. Um but yeah, that's um, that's the end of the case. So it's a, a long one, as the actress said to the bishop. And um, but yeah, fascinating to get a real insight into Japanese culture. But such a sad tale. And Lucy had so much going for her. Um, she was twenty-one, and yeah, she could have made it work in Japan, and she just wasn't given the chance, unfortunately. What a really, really sad story and a really sad case. Yeah. So we, um, well, I won't be back next week because I'm on holiday, obviously. Uh, <laughs> I didn't but even you, say it that time. I uh, know, but you have uh, another guest, don't you, Bethan? So you'll I be do. back with guest uh, for an exciting tale. 
yeah it's gonna be it's gonna be a really interesting one um with quite a fun little twist and i love a twist yeah don't we just um no it's a really interesting case and it has a conclusion as well which is always i'm i'm mm. always find it really hard when something's a mystery so it has got a conclusion yeah and my friend jade will be joining us so there we go mm. lovely name um so yeah if uh yeah join us for that and we'll see you next time and hopefully next time mark's here he won't be drinking gin I know, poor Bethan. <laughs> it's only the one. I'm, I'm still fucked. Uh, so yeah, we'll see you next time. See Take you it then. Easy. Bye. Bye.